Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Jane Mara, I am so excited to have you on She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Jules. <laughs> now, I am dying for you to tell everybody what it is that you do because I love it. So can you just explain what it is that you do now and why you've set it up? What? So we're talking about now and then later on I'm going to ask you a bit about, um, you know, how you got here. But let's talk about what you're actually doing now because I'm very excited to have read your book or seen your book. I haven't read all of it. Um, so I've got a little inkling of what you do, but tell us all. Okay, so for the past 20 years, um, my business expert intuition has been helping people to tap into their intuition deliberately, to have more insights, to have more aha moments for, you know, those moments of greater creativity, you know, the light bulbs that we talk about, and that, of course, leads to higher productivity. Absolutely. And I mean, I love intuition just as a topic because I certainly, you know, we we interview female founders on this and so much of being a female founder is following your intuition, I think. Absolutely. But why, why did you set it up in the first place or what, what, why are you so interested in intuition? Well, I think, you know, in retrospect, um, I've always been intuitive uh, and that was something that really served me well. Now, Jules, I worked initially, and I know we're going to cover some of this, but I worked in advertising agency land. Right. And then I worked in marketing. And, you know, there it was very valued and it was quite okay just to talk about how you felt intuitively about a campaign or an ad and so on. So that was quite well accepted. I then went to work in publishing as well, as I know you have. So um, when I worked in those industries, intuition was... Accepted. So that feeling of knowing exactly without knowing, you know, what was going to occur or was a very valuable way to, you know, reflect. And they do talk about women's intuition as in ours is maybe more finely honed. I think ours is. That's, it's actually um, a physiological issue because of yes. corpus callosum. <laughs> but that's a whole other issue about the brain. So um, women are more inclined in my research, and I've done a huge deep dive into this, to actually listen to their intuition, whereas right. men often ignore it. And I certainly discovered that a lot when I interviewed people for my first book because I interviewed over 55 business leaders Right. Predominantly business and entrepreneurs and artists, um, yeah. even a bishop and a mountaineer <laughs> to reflect right. and look at just how important their intuition was in their decision making. So there had been a lot of work, Jules, in the academic world um, around intuition and decision making from a psychological approach. But there had been nothing to this degree that was actually, you know, in the world uh, interviewing all these people and asking them to, uh, to a couple of simple questions like, do they, are they aware of it? Do they listen to it? And yeah. tell me a time about when you did and, when, and what happened and when you didn't and what happened. Oh, you must get some great tales out of that question. I those certainly questions. did. And it was in my first book called Intuition on Demand. So out of that, uh, some great connections and really that discovery, which it's a very valid decision-making tool, but we often ignore it. 
more often than not, including even examples of one particular female CEO who said to me, you know, she was walking down the aisle to then marry her husband and she just yeah. had this absolute feeling this was totally wrong and she wanted to actually turn around and, walk and run out of the uh, church. But she didn't. But she said it took me another 12 months to get out of it. Oh, I mean, we just when, when you know, you know, don't you? Yeah. So, so was there something that specific that actually happened that made you go, right, this is it, I'm going to go actually, you know, start being an expert in this, a sort of a light bulb moment? Well, yes, I suppose very much when I was studying, I decided to, I had marketing qualifications, but I went to Macquarie University, or then it was called Macquarie Graduate School of Management, um, to do my MBA. And often, you know, we're in all these lecture theatres and lots of things about analysis, logic, the data, and how important that was. So All the left brain stuff. All the left brain stuff. Now, at that stage, emotional intelligence was only just being talked about. Right. So I found myself really a fish out of water. And yep. I, you know, used to talk about other things. And so we did, of course, subjects like marketing and services marketing and new enterprise management. And, and I always found that I was putting up ideas and projects particularly that were ahead of the curve, if you like. So I was really um, a bit visionary when I think about what I did then and what I wrote about. So I, so I had this feeling when I was completing that that um, I could make a business out of this to help business people get more in touch with it. So, particular, Did you think particularly corporates, are they your clients? Because well, they, yeah, I, I would thought have thought squash, squash intuition a bit. Uh, they do, and I, that was probably part of, um, you know, it was a bit like climbing the mountain in many yeah. ways because I um, I went and researched, you know, people that I knew well in the advertising and marketing field and publishing, and they said, yeah, yeah, fabulous, yeah, that's been great. Um, then I went strolling off to corporate, and it wasn't quite like that. What happened? What did they say? Kind well, of like, what are you even like, thinking of what? this for? <laughs> or things like, um, oh, Yes, I know about it, but I'd never say anything in front of my board. Or, you know, I've had a feeling, a gut feeling, they'd often say, particularly males, when I was hiring that person that it was all wrong. And then I went and really checked his background and found there was reason for his suspicion. So things like that would come out and start to emerge. And then I was asked to do some speaking. And yeah. I probably, in my advertising career, I've done quite a lot of presenting, as you do, and things like that. So um, I went off and I was then, I had a speaker's bureau, who were also a training bureau. And right. through them I met lots of people who were in the speaking training business. And one of them said to me, um, you know, I really think you should write the book. So that led to the first book. And, right. And that led me to confirm what I already knew. So going back, for me, as a personal story, I, when I ignored it, I had a terrible outcome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every time. But one time I was working at an advertising agency and I was doing really well in my 20s and I got, yeah. as you do, you got recruited to go somewhere else and... You never looked for a job. The jobs used to come to you. Yeah. So I went to my boss, and I really loved where I was. And this was Ogilvy, which was my favourite agency. Yeah. And um, I resigned, did all that stuff. And he said, "Oh, he said I think you're going to regret this." But anyway, off I went to the largest advertising agency in Australia, and yeah. I found not only that I was doing a job which was, 
much less than my capability. And I was sort of, I was actually earning less money, which was also a really weird thing to do as well. And it, this <laughs> I don't even want huge. to ask why you did it then. <laughs> well, it seemed to be. I was talked into it by this recruiter saying, oh, it's great right. career progression, you know. Yeah. But actually it was a career regression. <laughs> so I sat there and I sat there and I sat there. And even from the first day I went, oh, dear, this is all wrong. So... After a week, it took me over a week to find the right person to resign to. Wow. <laughs> and then, a then I got called in. Did you go back in. to the old agency? I'm sorry? No, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Then I got called in by the head media director who was really, oh, yeah. really heavy duty. And he said he was appalled that I wanted to resign and said, and don't ever think about coming back to our advertising agency <laughs> as long as you live type thing. Don't darken yeah. my door. So I, um, I went back to my old boss and I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I come back? <laughs> well, I didn't quite come back. But sometimes, you know, what happens is that leads you into a different uh, journey. And it did for me because I freelanced for quite a while before I ended up going overseas and other things happened and I ended up coming back to a great agency that was then. Oh, wonderful. All right. Well, this perfectly leads me to um, the question, which is when you were a little girl, I bet you didn't think you wanted to be an expert in intuition. So can you tell me all about your entrepreneurial journey and how it's happened and take me through the agencies that you worked with and that kind of thing as well? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I, I didn't enjoy school at all. Right. Um, I couldn't wait to get out of the place. What did you like about school? When I went to school, it was all about the career choices for women were not huge. Right. So they were about nursing, teaching, perhaps a pharmacist. Something Uh, that where you can find some guy who's qualified to marry. (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit like that. And, you know, secretarial school, obviously, and things like that. So I um, went along that secretarial route, but I... So that was pretty boring. And I literally almost fell into an advertising agency. So, um, and that was just really exciting because we're a medium-sized agency. They had great clients and they had things, Jules, like a full production TV department. And, you know, we had lots of interesting But tell me, how did you almost fall into it? Well, I fell into it because I went into it through the secretarial sort of area and then I realised that this was just such an interesting place. And it was full of characters, you know, real characters. Yeah, and there's so much buzz around ad yeah. agencies. I mean, I've always loved times when I've worked with them as well. Yeah, and great, you know, creative people. And they were all a bit wacky, really. So I sort of felt at home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but my, okay, so you yeah. so you kind of tripped up and, and, and as in, I'm guessing you got a secretarial job or a job in reception yeah, that did, got you yeah. into the agency and then you went, I want more of this. Is that sort of how it happened? Exactly. And and then I went to a very, very small advertising agency and because I could get into media, which is what I wanted to do, because I right. I hadn't been quite in the media department, they didn't have a spot for me in the other place. And I was running a media department when I was 19. Wow, that's amazing. It was a bit. It was a bit just scary. Just explain to, to anybody that doesn't know Advertising Land, what is the media department? Well, the media department is where the important decisions are made <laughs> <laughs> because it's about how you spend the client's money. So, and right. how you so get it's what, the best bang for the media back. that you want to advertise in, isn't it? Yeah, so where you placed all the ads, whether that was print, TV, radio, and so on, and then the negotiations that went with that. So, I learned a lot very fast because I right. was literally. 
Well, 19 as the head of department certainly says you learned fast. I did. It was very small and it was run by father and son, uh, you know, guys. And they were really, really helpful, actually. And they just said, I think you can do it. I'd been there a couple of months underpinning or, you know, understudying the person they had in. And then he left quite suddenly. And then they said, OK, you do it. Wow. And were you sort of quite thrilled and nervous? Or? Oh, both. I mean, I was both. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified, I think, most of the time. And I kept <laughs> thinking, well, I used to work, you know, like every weekend as well, because at least one day on the weekend, because I thought I'm going to miss something, you know, because you were spending somebody else's money. And yep. that was really quite alarming and making sure everything was right. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess the big thing with media buying and working in the media agency is, you know, if something goes wrong or you've chosen the wrong one or whatever that you're going to feel really bad. So what do you do? What did you do after that? How did you get out of there and what was the next spot? Well, I think I just kept going on because the, the next thing that happened was that they got a guy in, another guy who was very ambitious and he was um, sort of edging into my space. So I wasn't too happy about that. And in right. those days, as I said a bit earlier, you know, you could actually just, the phone would ring and yep. somebody would say, come and work over here for more money, often. <laughs> so, yeah, fantastic. So I did. And, I remember um, that. Uh, that was how it sort of evolved. Yeah. And so so you did, so how long were you in advertising for then? Uh, quite a way, quite a while. And then I was working on airline business. So I worked on the Qantas business and okay. that was great because I had a lot um, of responsibility and lots of fun in that agency. Did you, uh, I was going to say, did you get to travel? Was this I when did, they started yeah, doing I, those? I did because I, the responsibility was for Asia and for, you know, the uh, Pacific Islands, Fiji, Namir, that sort of stuff. So wow. I went to buy well, the media in Fiji, Namir. So that was a fun that, trip. At that age. I'm sorry? That must have been so exciting at that age to be travelling as well. It was. It was. It was very exciting. And then I got headhunted to go to work for a very large global agency who had just won the British Airways account. In Australia still? In Australia and globally right. they'd won the business. Wow. Mm. Who was, what agency was that? It was then called Footcone and Belding, uh, FCB, and they took over a Melbourne agency called Spasm. That's incredible, though, when you're thinking of an Australian agency taking on British Airways worldwide. Mm. Well, they did. And, um, you know, there was lots of things like that going on at the time, you know. But they had, Footcombe were international, so they were US. Right. So they'd won it as a group. Yeah. Okay. And so what happened next? So that was great fun for a while and no travel, even though it was anticipated. So (laughs) I... You know, my view always was, and this is not, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I had very little fear about what I wanted to do, and I was very ambitious. So I just thought, you know, whatever the next guy is doing, you know, if I can see something else happening, well, that's something that I could do. So I'd go off and find out more about it. So I was working. No, I love that. I absolutely love that attitude, Jane. It's not, doesn't sound arrogant at all. It sounds adventurous and entrepreneurial to me. It is. It was. And I didn't recognise that that's what I was doing at the time. But But also I was still in that arena of advertising where males were often much more highly paid than females. Right. And I was running a lot of business for this agency and the male media director was literally out to lunch or at golf, one or the other. 
And yeah, there was so I just couldn't see. I hit the ceiling very early, I guess. And so I thought, well, I'll. So roughly, how old are you then? Stop in my early thirties. Okay. And so I left. I went overseas for a while, and you know, just to look around. And I looked at jobs in London and things like that. Yeah. Um, I didn't stay. I didn't take a job in London though, which probably, in retrospect, I, I certainly could have, and and probably that would have been good. And a lot of Australians then were working in Hong Kong, so I came back through Hong Kong and caught up with some people, and they were all having a great time there. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, I came back to Australia, and then it went on from there until I went back to Ogilvy again. So I had sort of three attempts or sojourns at Ogilvy. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And then what made you do the leap or, or what was the moment that you thought I'm going out on my own? Well, it was, um, I segued out of advertising into marketing. I ran uh, quite a, a significant group in a global financial services business in Sydney. Um, oh my goodness. What was that like? I just have to ask because <laughs> I know advertising land intimately, which is just so much fun, as you say, kooky characters, very long hours, but, but. Mm. you know, very stimulating. Mm. I don't get that impression of financial services businesses. Uh, no, it wasn't. So and what was that like? I won't name them. It was really the grey cardigans, I used to call it. You know, I'd get in the lift in the morning with the grey cardigans and think, ooh, what am I doing here? Um, it's so weird, isn't it? I, I actually worked at Coots Bank in London for a while, on, um, putting together their brand book. Oh, and wow. I will never forget, I had never seen anything like it in my life because I'd worked in advertising at 501 Everyone was outside the lift trying to go home. And I was like, what even is this? Oh, yeah. So it's just <laughs> so different, isn't it? It was wildly different. I, I had segued that way because I'd worked on a very large insurance client in the right. agency. And so I knew a lot about, you know, marketing for, in, for this particular company. And so that's why they bought that expertise. And so it was, an, it was like an in-house marketing group. So we yeah, had our own yeah. creative production and so on. And, but very, very different world. And no, it wasn't fun. And that's how I segued into my own business because when I came out of that, I thought, hmm, what do I do now? So I went really consulting. And right. one thing led to another. So I was writing new business pitches for people, uh, for other agencies. And I was really specialising in that sort of area. And then I went to work funnily enough, for that very large agency that said, don't darken my door again. <laughs> oh, there's something exquisite about that. Oh, yeah, but it was a division. Uh, it wasn't the main media area. By that stage, you remember the media buying services had started up? So right. it was a, a group within the agency because my old boss from Ogilvy had gone there. And so I went there and, and that was interesting. And then I segued into doing more client work and doing some work, even developing a whole database uh, software program back in the... Right. A long time ago. <laughs> to uh, and, and measure responsiveness of advertising. So because I buy that stage, I'm specialising in direct marketing. Okay. And so when the emotional intelligence stuff started coming out and um, you were really interested in intuition, so how, did you work through getting your... Um, doing your doctoral or whatever it was that you said you did on intuition? Well, I didn't quite do that. I, I had a funny sort of life in one sense because I, I was studying a lot of what makes people tick 
and doing yeah. a lot of workshops um, because at one stage I thought I wanted to become a naturopath, so I started studying nutrition <laughs> and I started studying herbs and, you know, massage, and I was doing all the components of a naturopathic degree. Yeah. At the same time, I was working still and doing my freelance stuff. So I was planning to go that way. And because, like many people, you know, when you work all those crazy hours, Jules, and, you know, travel and great lifestyle, but I had some health challenges. Right. And this is, in a sense, what led me more to the intuition space because I went to see probably one of the first, uh, what was called naturopathic, I suppose, then, but she was a GP. Um, Right. She really looked into you know, diet and things like that. And I used to go and do these things like have acupuncture and things like this on a Saturday and I'd be sitting there for hours waiting for it because she had very long appointments with people. And really um, started reading a magazine called Wellbeing, which was all about natural health. Oh, Wellbeing magazine, which is still around. Yeah, it's a great magazine. So um, I was reading this and thinking, oh, this course sounds interesting and that's all about, you know. So I did a lot of other study, other modalities, and I was never quite sure where I wanted to go with it. So then subsequently a job came up at Wellbeing to be a marketing manager, and I went there and within a month I was promoted to general manager. Wow. So it was oh, a- so you were – maybe that's where I know your name from. So oh, you were the general manager of Wellbeing. Yeah, so it so it was Wellbeing the magazine, and it was also um, a, a publishing. So we published books as well for our authors, right. um, yeah, because a lot of the contributors were also authors. And you know, I wasn't responsible so much for the editorial. I had some say in the editorial. It was really the running of the business, because the yeah. publisher was an absent publisher in the sense that she was teaching Reiki all over the world, so she wasn't in Australia right. very often. Right, right. So, I so had, is that what gave you the idea for writing a book? Uh, no, not quite, but it gave me some skills, of course, also seeing, you know, and also from the advertising marketing days, how you put something together from scratch. Right. So, and I was always very interested in the creative and design side. And I guess reflecting back on your school question, my when I was at school, the only subject I really adored was English and history, things like right. that. I really didn't do <laughs> very much with anything else. We are peas in a pod. I was exactly the same. Although I stupidly, I just, you know, when you have a really great teacher, Mm. I had a fantastic physics teacher who ended up, I ended up doing physics to year 12, which is such a bizarre thing because I was an English and English lit and geography kind of uh, a girl who did physics. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, good heaven. But, you know, we all do crazy things, I guess, along the way. So, so, um, sorry, I I interrupted and I shouldn't have. No, not at all. Not at all. Tell me a bit more about the books and how the book has started and then I'm going to ask you about some pivotal moments that might have happened that, um, you know, have steered you in different directions. Or And because you've interviewed so many people, the other thing you could do is tell us stories of anyone else when that's happened because I love the idea of the silly woman who didn't listen to her intuition and ended up marrying (laughs) that guy. (laughs) There's a great story actually in the first book about a mountaineer. He was one of the first people I interviewed. Um, Yeah. So his name is Michael Groom and he wrote a book called Sheer Will. But he tells a great story about, you know, he climbed the mountains, all the major mountain groups in the world. But in this particular climb, he was with a group in the Himalayas. And he was... um, with the group and they were debating about that particular day whether to go forward to the next part of the climb and you know they were looking at the conditions they were looking at 
all of those sort of things. But he he, he said to me, his gut feeling, as he called it, told yeah. him this was not a good idea. However, um, sometimes, as you know, it is in business too, the group, you know, group think can rule. Group and rules, so yes. they went ahead. And he ended up caught in metres of ice and was there and had to dig his way out of this because there was, you know, he fell severely. Oh. And when I met him, it was in Brisbane, and I went to see him one day and it was, it was actually about July, but when he answered the door, he had, you know, like a Queenslander, pretty much, you know, shorts and a shirt and, yeah. um, <laughs> and socks and sandals. And I thought, oh, socks, interesting at this time of year. And then I remembered about my background reading that, of course, he'd lost all of his toes due to frostbite when he fell right. like that and he had to dig his way out of the ice. But he And he was told when he came back to Australia, A, he'd never climb mountains again, B, he would never be able to ride a bike, drive a car, play with his kids, any of those things. And yet he's done all of that. Um, he is perfectly able to do all of those things and has gone back climbing mountains again. Isn't that so, funny? Listening to his intuition on the way, though, this time. Yeah, but it's a pity he didn't listen to his intuition. But I mean, that's one of those things that often happens in in hindsight and you go, I should have listened to it. Um, But you don't know at the time whether you're just kind of, you know, thinking of something silly, I guess. Well, yes. And often the other thing, Jules, I've discovered in talking to many people is that fear gets in the way. You know, other things cloud our our intuitive judgment, if you like. You know, A, it can be not convenient because it might take you in an entirely different direction that yeah. A, doesn't want suit, you know, what your logical mind is saying to you, and B, um, just could be upsetting for other people or, you know, it's not an action you want to take. But, I, you know, I've really learned over the years, um, and maybe this is where obviously experience comes in to some degree with this too, that when you don't listen to it, it's when it's not the right it doesn't work out well. It nor, nearly always ends up in, in disappointment. Yeah. So let's just finish your story, though. I'm, I'm really interested because you've taken us through a big career in advertising, moving on into marketing through a financial services um, mm. business, which I commiserate with you, to be honest. <laughs> um, so how, how did that then pan out into, into your career for the last 20 years? So... Um... After the publishing world, I went back into, because of my financial services history, a friend of mine called up and said, "Um, this particular bank needs your help on credit card marketing, would you believe? Oh, you're a sucker for punishment. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so I go from this very small, you know, publishing group, which was very quite esoteric, um, into a full-on marketing department at the biggest bank in Australia. Blimey. And... And and, and what was your role there? Were you heading it up? <laughs> well, I was on contract, actually. I started for a contract for three months, ended right. up being there for two years. Oh, so it wasn't as bad. So I probably should withdraw my <laughs> commiserations for you. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. No, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But in that time, that's when I decided to do my study at MGSN, Macquarie Graduate School. Um, right. Because I thought if I'm going to be in banking, I'd better get this, you know, more serious management stuff done. Um, okay. And then I was studying and I went onto another bank. I went to Citibank or Citigroup yeah. and then I went to Macquarie Bank. Wow. So, oh, wow. I didn't realise you had such a big career in banking. I did, yes. And brand and marketing in Macquarie, which was fun because that was the first ever brand campaign that Macquarie did. 
at the time. So, um, but that was coming to an end, that contract, which was probably, and they were all contracts, but they were long term. And it was just as well that came to an end because um, all the people I ended up working for, a, a new broom came in and they all went. Oh, good. Mm. Right, yes, good timing then. Yeah, it was good timing. And at the end of that, I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I, the seed of this idea about how do you bring more intuition into business emerged for me. So that's when I started. So did you did you talk with some of the people at the bank at the beginning to say, this is what I'm thinking of doing? Because I'm interested to know what, they, what their reactions were. Because I was, yeah, in a more marketing bent, yeah, the marketing people I did. Um, right. The others, not so much. Um so, yeah, in in the marketing arena, I did. So, so what's it like? Because um, I know what it's like when I when you build a business in an in an area where there isn't much understanding or knowledge at the beginning, and you've really got to kind of work on educating people as well. So, when you decided to consult around um, intuition, hmm. what were those first few conversations like with organisations to say actually this could make a big difference, presumably to their bottom line? Yeah, um, um, well... What was the argument? Frankly, um, they didn't see that necessarily. Um, And then I learned... I was starting to run my own seminars, Jules. So I did small seminars out of my own networks and then other people would tell other people. Um, And because by this stage I'd developed some techniques and tools to help people access intuition on demand. So I did attract some people and then that led me into more one-on-one work rather than group, you know, doing large groups. The groups came later. So one-on-one work and then coaching um, came out of that. So I would find that individuals would come to me. At the same time, I started actually doing quite a lot of um, media. So I was interviewed in a lot of business media, even the accountants' magazines. (laughs) Sorry, but that's what I do on the side. I know. I'm thrilled because it makes a huge difference. Yeah, it does. And I was interviewed on Peter Switzer's program on Qantas, Talking business, oh, a couple business of radio. Yeah, that was really good. And you know, PR used to bring me clients. Yeah, still does. If well, still does for everyone that I'm working with. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, so tell me um, along the way, just because this is a show about female founders and women in business, I always like to ask the question: Have there been any women or significant women that stand out in your mind that have really helped you in your journey? Or in your career? Yes, I think they have. Um, I think my mother was the first one because she said to me, you know, you can do whatever you want, which was a bit different to the messages that were in the world at the time. Amazing, yeah. The other thing was that, um, you know, yes, certain women, I think at the beginning of my career in advertising, women, because I was so few in senior roles, so that was much more, they were quite competitive and they were not right. necessarily helpful. Later on, certainly there have been some wonderful women who have been supportive. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the more I'm speaking to people, the more the women are telling me that when they worked in corporate, because of the culture, which being so sort of cutthroat, I guess, yeah. that the women are much more competitive and, and much less supportive. And I've heard some actually some awful stories of uh, women really trying to cut other women off at the knees. But Almost all of them say when they went out on their own and they started talking with other women who were running their own businesses or who were being entrepreneurial, that it was a completely different experience and that they found that much more supportive. Has that been your... Yeah, absolutely. And and also men. You know, men have proved to be yes. incredibly helpful as mentors throughout, particularly yes. the last, 
you know, if you like, this other stage of my life with this business. So I've had some wonderful support, a wonderful mentor and friend uh, over the last 20 years, a very senior business person and branding and Harvard MBA background. So that's been superb. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love hearing all these stories that, 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 that we are all trying to lift up the women around us. Yes. So um, now when you've got a business that is in, about intuition – and it's something that you absolutely love and, and, you know, it's an integral part of your life. How do you juggle your work and your life? Do you have, you know, defined times that you work? Are you working nine to five, five days a week? Or how does it all sort of pan out? And I guess uh, uh, for anyone that's listening, we are in the middle of the pandemic lockdown. So that's <laughs> kind of clipping our wings a bit this year. But just in general, do you try and sort of define work time separately from playtime? I work when I work. Um, One of the things that I've realised over time, Jules, is that as an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, you're a visionary. So having a great idea, for example, doesn't necessarily occur sitting at a desk. And that's often why I ask That is a really good point that can happen at any time. Yeah, because as I'm sure you've read in my book, 95% of of insights arise beyond the conscious mind. Right. And so when you're, you know, the famous the shower moment, or no. I've had people say to me, walking the dog, or in the gym, or in those days when we used to fly yes. on a plane. Uh, yes, That's yes, yes. when you get the aha moment. And there's a physiological reason for that, but that's a whole other subject. So uh, my insights can occur at all times of day or night. So I keep notepads all the time with that. I, don't I was going to say, do you have it. a notepad or a little voice recording? Uh, I, I keep notepads because I like to do that. And, you know, if it's a really serious insight, I'll just I'll type it up later on. Um, and often they end up emerging into books later. So I really have known that I can rely on that. So when I'm really stuck on something, I go for a walk. Right, good. I, yeah, that's that's interesting, and I love the idea of the notepads. I mm. often think of the, of things in the middle of the night and think of those the the odd movie that you see where somebody has a notepad beside their bed and they kind of wake up going, "Oh my god, I should do this." But often in the morning, I look at it and go, mm, "Not quite as um, you know groundbreaking as I think it is <laughs> in the middle of the night." Yeah, but you know, entrepreneurs are very visionary, and often with your intuition, the thing that I would encourage, Jules, and I do this with my clients, is to say, "You've got to remember." intuition has its own resonance it has its own way of addressing you right what do you mean by that well so it has a language all of its own if you like so you might see an image you might see a purple cow but that's not necessarily that it might be the ocean the way that it how it communicates is different for each person so each one of us has a predominantly Uh, stronger if you like muscle because it's like a muscle the more you use it the more you improve it right oh I didn't know that I think my my I've always thought my superpower is when someone says to me this is what I'm thinking of doing for a business and I go oh my god this is exactly how you could do it (laughs) it's just I I would say I'm probably one of the most annoying people to be around for anybody that's um I think that's fantastic that's a great skill because entrepreneurs also (laughs) are serial they uh, they recognize patterns that other people don't necessarily see. They have a different way of putting the cake mixed together. So they're very visionary. Now, the, the challenge with that can be that they often forget to bring along other people with them on the journey right. because they're so yes. far ahead of it. And think the, the classic example of this has been written about extensively is Steve Jobs. 
because he saw exactly what he wanted to do with an iPod and so on. And it wasn't, some of his ideas were not original ideas. It was about how he put it together and how he packaged it. And then he had this vision of it had to be superb design and it had to, you know, work so intuitively and so on. So he was really super difficult to work with because of that. Right. Because he wouldn't take no for an answer with any of it, you know. And, And he was just... He was already there way before everybody else. And that's the challenge when you're an entrepreneur. So it's being able to bring people along with you and to surround yourself with people who have the skills and experience that you respect and to work with that, with them. Amazing. Oh, I just love, I'm absolutely loving this this um, conversation. I think I'm going to have to come and chat to you outside of absolutely. the podcast. Absolutely, very as welcome well. to Jules. But yeah. let's let's just talk about um, a little bit more about you. Is mm. there a, look and and there may not be, but is there a quirky fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up <laughs> oh, to sharing? Oh, you're challenging on that one too. Yes, I was thinking about it, and um, I sang operatic aria in the Sydney Opera House. What? Yeah. When did you do that? <laughs> I studied <laughs> classical singing for seven years. I loved it. Where, it was my passion. Was this was this in your twenties, thirties? Like where, where yeah, were you? Yeah, just your at the end of um, you know, I started when I was about nineteen, twenty. Oh, right. But I was trying to juggle my advertising career and you know, working as you understand the crazy hours that we work and then trying yeah. to get to a rehearsal at six o'clock at night for a semi professional opera company. And then learning my roles, and I didn't um, have language skills, and particularly, I mean, I did some French at school, but um, learning, you know, Italian particularly, and then um, studying piano. So I developed a great love of music through all of that. That's a great quirky fact. <laughs> and, I, and actually, it just makes me think of Dr. Louise Marler. I don't know if you know her. I just her, listened but... to it yesterday and I thought, oh, oh my you? gosh, that was what a good one to listen to. Woman. Yeah. <laughs> Two opera singers in the group. That's fantastic. Okay, now we get to the silly part of the conversation, really. <laughs> there is no um, reason for having this other than I'm p- particularly obsessed with my phone myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I like to ask anyone, and I don't know whether you do, do you use your phone much? I do, a lot. Um, I don't use it so much for pleasure, I suppose, or fun. Um, But I do have an... I think you were wanting to know about about that. Yes. Uh, Well, you know, what are the two most useful apps for business on your phone? Um, There's one called Todoist, which is like a to-do list. Yes. Uh, Have you got that one? It's it's quite handy. It's funny you should say that, but uh, my bookkeeper loves it and does everything through Todoist for me and then I click on the links and I can never find the yeah. the actual questions but yes I, I know it well and it's fantastic and it's great because if you're out and again those light bulb moments you think of something or you think oh I meant to email so-and-so or whatever it is and if you put it all down of course it brings up reminders um, for you and you can have it scheduled through or synced in with your diary. I'm going to so, try it actually now that you've said it using it that way because I always just so closely associate it with um, the bookkeeper saying here's the spreadsheet can you check this or you know have you done that mm-hmm. and I've never thought about using it for myself but I like it and what is there another one that you love? Um, the other one I love is there's a, an app called Vivino which is really helpful if you're wanting to buy a lovely bottle of wine it's comparative site or if you're out and you've had a really nice bottle or glass of wine you can take a photo of it um, of the label and it reviews it it tells you where to buy it it tells you you know other similar wines and so on 
Yeah, it's quite clever. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot now because I love it that you love apps. Have you got any other good ones that you want to recommend? Look, I the other thing I have been exploring a lot of, I'm actually in the middle of my um, next development is some technology. Ooh. Which um, is going to bring together a lot of what I already do. So working with Brilliant. a fantastic group of people around this technology application. Because one yeah. of my big things has been to bring scientific concepts, as you know from reading what you've read in the book, that are quite sometimes remote and not necessarily um, you know, applicable for the general public, if you like. Let's just say right. that. So a lot yeah. of the stuff that lives in the academic world only sees those academic world people. So I'm developing some technology to help people get more in touch with their insights and also to have more stress and, uh, you know, less stress rather, lower stress and more <laughs> I, I resilience. So, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so I'm exploring a whole lot of different apps because I'm looking at some technologies that are pretty new and looking at some hardware. And So I'm trying out things a lot, particularly around more relaxed brainwave states. So I do quite a few meditations online. Right. Oh, well, that sounds fantastic. When are you hoping that that's going to be launched? Well, I'm hoping that we get to beta within six months. So that would be, let me just, for anyone that's watching, so sort of March-ish Yeah, it's ambitious, but uh, we've found the hardware and we've found the right people to work with. So that's really good. So. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I love it. That's just, a, that's what, what a great thing. Because I was going to say now, how will people get hold of you? Well, com is the website. Sorry, say it again. I, I spoke over you. Uh, Jane Mara, J-A-N-E-M-A-R-A dot com. Brilliant. Okay, well, Jane, wow, I cannot wait to see what you're going to do next, really. And I love <laughs> what it is that you're doing. And I love that you've you've turned it into a science rather than, a you know, everybody talking about gut feeling here or there that actually that, you know, you can apply it and also that you can get it at will. So, um, I really, really appreciate you. I think people are going to find this a fascinating interview. Fabulous, Jules. And I'd love to come and join your Friday lunch soon too. Yes. Well, I will um, tell you all. And for anybody that's listening, you should all come and join my Friday lunches. They're for female founders, only extraordinary ones. So uh, I've got some pretty awesome women in there. And it's a great way to spend a Friday, especially while we're still in lockdown. But I don't think I'm ever going to stop. Because I just enjoy it so much. <laughs> well, Les, it's been delightful to talk to you, and thank you for this opportunity. And yeah, I'd love to talk to you um, separately if you feel to. No problem. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Okay. All right. You take care down there. I hope you've enjoyed this She's the Boss chat episode. It was great to have you here. If you want to stay in touch, you might also like some of the other things that we've got going on with She's the Boss. Firstly, I've got the She's the Boss show, which is on Ticker TV. Now, you can watch that either on tickertv.com.au or you can download the Ticker app from any of the app stores. So Apple and Android, and they've got an app that is for your phone, for your iPad or tablet, and for the smart TV. Or you could join us for our free Zoom lunches for female founders that we hold online. The best way to do any of these things really is go to she'stheboss.com.au and on there you can register for the lunches and I've also got links to the website. So either way, I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm really enjoying digging down and getting down to the nitty gritty with these women and I hope you'll join me for the next episode. 